In rural England, the names are as evocative as the scenery. Dorset, Shropshire, Cornwall, Somerset, the Cotswolds, and the wild moorlands of York. Just a few of the places we'll be looking at in the hour ahead. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We're joined today by Roy Nichols, a British guide and historian who's here to help us plan a visit to the land of shepherds, poets, and writers, and maybe a few hobbits. From manor house gardens to ancient stone circles, Roy will show us how to find just the right places to best experience the charm of merry old England. Lots of lovely little fishing villages, lovely little towns, beautiful empty coastline, beautiful scenery. And we'll celebrate the 200th anniversary of the birth of Frederick Chopin and find out why the people of Poland are so enthusiastic about this native-born composer. Whenever I listen to Chopin, it really brings me back home. From the romance of rural England to the soul of the Romantic Age with the music of Chopin, it promises to be an evocative hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. The romance of the English countryside and the love affair Poland has with native son, composer Frédéric Chopin. You can almost smell the blossoms just by listening today to Travel with Rick Steves. I'm traveling in England. I just finished my hearty fry. That's the big fried breakfast. A lot of people call it a heart attack on a plate or a plate of cardiac arrest, but it's really good, and it gets me through the day into my sightseeing. My host unfolds a frayed old ordnance survey map. It's busy with pencil markings from years of giving advice to his travelers that come and stay in his bed and breakfast. Each trail, each Stonehenge age monument, every crest of a hill and every medieval manor house and pub is marked on his map. I could be in any of a thousand creamstone medieval towns across England, each with a world of sights within an easy walk from that little town square. I'm in England. I'm enjoying the countryside of one of the most exciting places to visit anywhere. And right now we're going to do exactly that. I'm joined by Roy Nichols. And Roy Nichols is a tour guide friend of mine. I've been taking groups around England with Roy for 30 years now. And Roy joins us to talk about the charms of his home country, England. Roy lives about 30 miles south of Salisbury or what? Southwest, southwest of Salisbury. Salisbury in Dorset. And uh, Roy, thanks for joining us. Rick, as always, it's a great pleasure. Now, I was just kind of winging it there with that image in a, in a bed and breakfast, but you used to run a bed and breakfast. We did indeed. My wife and I, Jodie, ran a bed and breakfast for five years in a little town called Blandford Forum in Dorset, an old 18th century manor house. It was a beautiful building. And you uh, English people have a wonderful passion for getting out an old beat-up map and sharing uh, ideas about your corner of the country. Well, any bed and breakfast host or a hotel host will give you advice about where to go, what things to see, places to do, things, the trails to walk on little local visits, all those sort of things. You could fly pretty cheaply down to the Costa del Sol if you just want sunshine. But if you really want to... Well, you can get sunshine in England as well. Can you? Well, you're down in the south. (laughs) That's good. You're where people used to go before they could fly to the far south, That's indeed, yeah. Now, uh, England, of course, has lots of variety. Let's, before we get into our discussion of uh, the highlights of the English countryside... Let's skip the uh, Celtic zones. We won't talk about Scotland Mm. or Wales. Let's just talk about England. But give me a little, you would say, a potted story, a a little story of each of the regions of England. Well, keep in mind that England is really quite a small little country. But within that small, small area, you've got an enormous amount of variety. You've got moorland areas. You've got lowland areas, which is the very archetypal English countryside, small little villages, all those sort of things. You've got the very flat land of uh, East Anglia with the great sort of areas of marsh and and places like that. You've got large rocky areas in the north of England around Northumberland. You've got the very similar areas in the very southwest down into Cornwall. Um, So a huge variation. Well, let's talk just uh, very briefly. Cornwall, rugged, sparsely populated, touristy and and Celtic. Very Celtic, because this was one of the refuges of the Celtic peoples after the coming of the English in the 5th and 6th centuries. And I think it's fair to say, if you find a Celtic region, in this case a part of England, on the very southwest tip, the far reach of England... Celtic people were shoved there by the Angles and the Saxons, and they, they're generally less, um, less pleasant farmland. It was always farmland on the edge. It the was edge. a difficult, difficult land, very high, rocky, or moorland. So it's fair to say the Angles and the Saxons took the best land and they shoved we the indigenous people. We did indeed. People. So we you did guys indeed. And, and the uh, sorry little Celts who were there first, they got to go to Scotland, Ireland, and Cornwall. And, and keep in mind, in fact, Cornwall was an independent kingdom to the ninth century. So it's really only been part of England for okay. the last thousand years or so. Lousy farm country, but right now, great place for tourism. People love to go to Cornwall. Cornwall is one of the most beautiful, most magical places on the planet. It really is. It's obviously. Why do, why do you say that? It's not just the Cornish pasties. Certainly not just the Cornish pasties. It, it's the coastline. 
seven-eighths of the county is actually coastline because it's a very narrow peninsula. Famous, out into little, famous little cutesy resorts on the coast. Or not resorts, Well, there's the, there's the resorts that we connect with with the 1920s and 30s, very sophisticated resorts. But you've also mm-hmm. got lots of lovely little fishing villages, lovely little towns, uh, beautiful, beautiful, empty coastline, beautiful scenery. So you live in Dorset. That's the next county over, right? No, it's actually two counties over. Two counties. If you're yeah. going to go to Dorset, wouldn't you say, why don't you just keep on going to Cornwall? Well, because there is huge variation. It's the variations actually within these very small areas because those three counties that butt together of Cornwall, Devon and Dorset are all very, very different. So and to Cornwall anybody, would be the most rugged, would you say? Most rugged to the southwest, although remember that Devon, although it's a very rural and pastoral area, has also got two large areas of moorland as well. Is in uh, Exmoor uh, and Dartmoor. Dartmoor. And Dartmoor. in Dartmoor, you've got wild ponies running around. Exactly. They've been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I was driving with you through Dartmoor. That's and it, right. It, it Many seemed, years ago. It seemed to me like I was in a Tolkien wonderland. It was that lush. Uh, don't you think, though, Rick, that's Mysterious. how so much of England is. This is what I still love traveling around England. You and I have been together doing this for 30 years. Tiny roads, huge hedges. That's right. Ancient trees. Uh, coming across ancient buildings buildings that have been there for a thousand years. Okay, let's head further north. We got um, the West Country. What's that called? Well, the West Country is those counties of uh, Cornwall and Devon and Dorset, but also other counties. What do you call the area around Bath and Wells? That's still part of West Country, but that's actually the county of Somerset. Somerset. Yeah. Isn't that, or no, Gloucestershire, where they say one of those places, if you scratch uh, Gloucestershire, you find Rome. Is that the deal? That's right, because there were so many Roman villas in that period, large country villas, Uh, And there's so many of them, famous places like Chedworth. Point being, the history goes way, way back. Oh, oh, thousands of years. A lot of these towns, you've got a church to St. Michael. Exactly. And that's usually a key to indicate that, in fact, it's a prehistoric site, a pre-Christian site, something of pagan origin. Now, why would that be? Well, because when Christianity was being introduced into England in the 5th and 6th centuries, uh, it was quite a pragmatic decision to not only take over the pagan festivals, times like Christmas and Easter, but also the place of worship. So to make the transition for the locals a lot easier than it would be. Okay. Winter solstice, the festival of Saturn or something like that, December 25th. Let's make it Christmas. That's right. All right. The shepherds weren't tending their sheep in December. Jesus must have been born in this. Somewhere like April. In in April. (laughs) But let's do it on top of the pagan festival, just so that pagan people have something to celebrate on the day that's not pagan. And you got the same thing. You got a pagan holy ground. Well, let's make sure they don't worship there anymore. We'll put our church on top of that. That's right. Dedicated to St. Michael. And St. Michael, when churches are dedicated to St. Michael, it's said to be indicative of this conflict between the new faith and the old faith. Because remember, St. Michael is the archangel, often uh, shown fighting dragons. So he's slaying the dragon of pagan thinking or whatever. That's what it is, yes. All right. Now, if we go farther north, we find the famous uh, romantic... Lakes country, lakes district. In the very northwest of England, quite close to the Scottish border, you've got a very small area, which is only 30, 40 miles north to south, east to west, but the most concentration of lakes, water, anywhere in England. With the greatest concentration of youth hostels per square mile anywhere in the planet. Oh, yes. Some of them are only two or three miles apart. Why is that? Well, because you have this incredibly beautiful scenery, great recreation area. People go there for walking and climbing, canoeing, sailing. And so it's one of the most well-used recreation areas in England. And this goes back to the Romantic Age, the last half of the 1800s when That's people right. were worshipping nature, literally. Well, in the late 18th century, we got the picturesque and the Romantic movement. People were looking at the countryside for the first time. as Instead of it being a barbaric area, somewhere to be avoided, um, they were looking at the natural scenery of their own country. So if you were sort of a highly cultured person, and you're talking late 1700s? Uh, that's right, 1770s, 1780s. Okay, that sort of uh, instead of, I mean, some people might go to Paris for these fancy salons and to do highfalutin urban things and cultural things. Other people might want to commune with the poets in the Lakes District. Well, that's right, because these places, of course, are connected with painters like Turner and Constable but also writers like uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge, all of those. So part of the pilgrimage for anybody who is a romantic in that sense would be to go up to the Lakes District and walk through the hills with the poet Wordsworth. Exactly. It was connecting with these people, people that were uh, sort of illustrating the beauty of these uh, places, either in words or in pictures. And this really was an entire era in England. I mean, part of the daily academic life of a scholar at Oxford or Cambridge would be to take a walk. 
That's true, because they were truly modern men in these days. Now, today, are English people still appreciating the great outdoors up in the Lakes District? Oh, certainly. I mean, the Lake District lies less than an hour's drive from the largest conurbations in England, places like Liverpool and Manchester. The largest what? Conurbations. Conurbation? Cities. You industrial speak English? <laughs> Conurbation. I've never heard that word. That's great. Yeah, you have that big Birmingham It's very area, good right? for crossword puzzles. Conurbations. Okay, so you get on the motorway. That's right. The M6 motorway can take you from these great large cities right up to the Lake District, and the population of the Lake District on a, on a beautiful bank holiday weekend can treble, quadruple. Wow. Do you know my, my recipe for really enjoying the Lakes District to the max? What's that, Rick? Stop at Blackpool on the way. Oh, Rick, that's an old, old chestnut with you and I, I think, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you go to Blackpool, and this is this sort of gritty, grimy, like Coney Atlant- Island of England. Exactly, Atlantic City or something so like that. So crass and tacky and full of, uh, what do you call it, rock candy and uh, candy floss. Candy floss and uh, rock. and. So then you do your Blackpool thing, and then you get to the pristine wonderland, and all of a sudden you're into Wordsworth poetry. It's like, exactly, it's from like the a, sublime to the ridiculous. Or oh, reverse. it's just good for your soul. Okay, moving a little bit, to the east from the Lakes District, we find uh, Hadrian's Wall. Well, just, just to the north and to the east uh, is Hadrian's Wall running across that very narrow point of England, 72 and a half miles, I think it is, deliberately chosen, obviously, by the Romans to disconnect the north from the south. You're also crossing over the Pennines, this sort of backbone of England, this ridge of hills that run right from the Midlands right up to the Scottish border. And you cross over from one beautiful area into another area into Northumberland and the counties of Northumberland and Yorkshire. So the Romans 2,000 years ago got as far north as that and they took the good land around Yorkshire and so on. Well, they they did actually venture further north. They were even north of Edinburgh. But they decided by the early 2nd century to uh, disconnect the north. To consolidate the empire and cut it off and they just said, we'll give the Scotland to those. Yeah, they just really left it to their own devices. All right. We start hooking back down towards London again. We get into uh, James Harriet country and the York Moors. That's right. And these are some of the very sort of typical moorland areas that one always thinks about in England. And if you've ever seen any of the TV shows of James Harriet, you'll know the countryside we're talking about. But there's this really beautiful rolling moorland Mm -hmm. bisected by beautiful valleys, river valleys, Beautiful countryside, stone houses, stone farmhouses, stone villages. And from there, you can easily go to Scarborough Fair. Scarborough, yes. And there's always been a Scarborough Fair. Wow. All right. Now, we come down further and you get to the Fens. And the Fens, I don't know a lot about it, but it just feels like the Netherlands. It's a very similar. And it's no coincidence that, in fact, much of the land that has been reclaimed was first reclaimed by the Dutch in the 17th and 18th centuries. Dutch engineers came over to Dutch England engineers to came over to England Because it's right across the water from Holland. It, exactly, it? just across the North Sea. Um, but the draining of the Fens, and the Fens is obviously a local word for these large areas of swampland that would be inundated every winter by the rains and the rivers, but prime farmland or potential farmland. So from Roman times, the Romans actually began the draining of these Fens, but it really accelerated during the 17th and 18th centuries really mainly through Dutch engineers. Lincoln is the big uh, sort of home base for a traveller there, is that um, right? Well, I, I would suggest places like Lincoln and Ely, Norwich, all of these places you can explore these beautiful areas. All right. Your calls for Roy Nichols about exploring the back roads and countryside of England are just ahead. We're at 877-333-7425. By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Roy Nichols, who joins us in our studio all the way from Dorset. What, southwest of uh, yeah, Salisbury? about 20, 25 miles southwest of Salisbury. Well, thanks for being here, and thanks for sharing your insight into Britain. And our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And David's on the phone from Clovis, California. David, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you both for taking my call. I love the Midlands 
the Cotswolds and the Thames Valley. Can you recommend a couple places to base my sightseeing and visiting in that area? You know, in our in our review, we really forgot to talk about the Cotswolds. We and, did uh, indeed. And that is the Midlands, and that yeah. really is the quintessential English countryside, as far as I'm concerned, two hours west of London. Roy, what's a good home base for David? Well, somewhere like the Cotswolds, I would base yourself somewhere like Lechlade. Um, from there, you could actually cover the, the Cotswolds themselves, but also down into the Thames Valley. Now, the Thames itself as uh, you know one of the main great arterial rivers of England rises in the Cotswolds and then flows obviously east towards London but if you want to just explore the Cotswolds itself base yourself somewhere like Chipping Camden or Stow on the Wold but otherwise somewhere further south somewhere like Lechlade in the South Cotswold David you know to me there's an irony here that the Cotswolds are so well preserved and so pristine and part of the reason is because they're kind of hard to get to from a transportation point of view. I mean, it's one of the, the facets of modern life that as people have turned to private transport, these villages have actually in many ways have become more isolated because local bus services have disappeared, train mm-hmm. lines have disappeared. So they can be very difficult to get to, but nonetheless that actually makes their sort of attractiveness even more. So it's a, a beautiful sort of uh, lining to that cloud. And David, what is your interest in the Thames Valley? To uh, live in uh, Banbury 40 years ago. Oh, a lovely little place. Connections with Banbury yeah. Cross and Banbury Cakes. Uh, yes, I had a uh, automobile accident on Banbury <laughs> Cross. So I remember that quite well. Yeah. Banbury I Cakes. Did... Well, David, what are Banbury Cakes? Uh, they're a, uh, a fruit, sort of like a pasty. A fruit pasty? Uh, yes. Yeah, David's right. It's, it's like flaky pastry or, or um, currants with sugar and things oh, contained in a flaky pastry case, and they've made them there for hundreds of years. So the, the tin minders could hold it with their polluted Well, it's not tin, not tin mining <laughs> there, but um, it's just a delicacy of the area. All right, David, thanks for your thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. And Michael's on the phone in Sacramento, California. Michael, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Hi, Rick and Roy. Hello, Michael. My wife and I have spent a couple of holidays uh, in England, and the Cotswolds is our favorite area. We were based in Chipping Camden, and that was just a wonderful area to be in. But some friends said that we should check out the Black and White Trail. It's some, I think it's Tudor, the Black and White, the Black Beams with the White Stucco. That's right, Michael. Well, the Black and White Trail is really in two of the counties of, well, Shropshire and Herefordshire. It actually runs over the border. And as you, as you mentioned, uh, these are a whole series of towns and villages that have this high concentration of timber frame buildings. We popularly associate them with the Tudor period, although many of them date from much earlier than that as well. And there are, these are villages and towns, as I say, that have got these marvellous collection of these beautiful timber frame buildings. And the Black and White Trail takes you round places like Leminster, Ledbury, and many of the lovely little villages. It's about a 25-mile trail. Obviously, you need to do it by car, but nonetheless, it's, uh, it's well I, worth doing. I've not heard of this. Is this actually in the Cotswolds? No, this is Herefordshire. This is right on the Welsh border. Ah. Um, Herefordshire and Shropshire are the two of the main counties that border the Welsh area. There's a little leaflet, two or three page leaflet, that you can pick up from any of the tourist information offices. A good base for that area is a town called Ludlow in Shropshire, which is a beautiful old walled town with a beautiful castle in the loop of the River Tame. Uh, again, it has beautiful buildings, and it's a good jumping-off place, uh, Michael, to do the Black and White Trail. Wonderful. I've got to add, I think if we're in Shropshire, Michael has an opportunity to see the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. That's right. Not many miles to the northeast is Ironbridge, where mm-hmm. in the 1770s, Abraham Darby first perfected the process of smelting iron using coke, um, and this helped to industrialize the whole process and really kick-started the Industrial Revolution. So the icon of that area is this iron bridge, the very That's first right. iron bridge that was built uh, in an important year for American history. 1779, right in the middle of the uh, American Revolution, but people were still traveling from the colonies, from America, to come and see this marvel of the age. It really was the marvel of the age. And around that, you've got all of these um, remnants from the birthplace of the Industrial Age. It's a, just an inspirational valley if you're interested in uh, checking out where our, our modern industry came from. Sounds good. Michael, you've got lots to see on your trip, on your next trip to you the bet. English countryside. Thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Lisa's on the phone in Brookville, New York. Lisa, thanks for your call. Yes, hi, Rick. Thank you uh, for taking the call. I've been a big fan for many years. Thank you. Um, I'm really on the phone to tell you about our house exchange experiences, which my family's done since my 
kids were seven, and we've done 12 exchanges now. But one of our favorites was one in a small village called Teffen near Salisbury. Oh, yes, I know it well. That's yeah. close to Roy's house. You, That's you, right. you actually do a house exchange where you let people from Roy's neighborhood come into your house with no supervision? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the family came to our house, and uh, we went there. And uh, we've done this quite a bit. Our most favorite thing about this house is it was an old manor house that dated back parts of it to the 17th century, and uh, they had a pony for my girls to ride. So there was nothing like having the girls walk the pony through the village and meeting people and just developing yourself in this, uh, you know, we thought we were in an English mystery story. There was a local Miss Marple who used to come by and talk to the girls, and when the pony got loose, the people from the village came and helped us get her back into her corral, and it was just a, a wonderful way to meet people and really live in that environment for two weeks. Well, i got to say, raising kids in the English countryside, that sounds like a delightful sort of environment. Yeah. Um, the house was interesting. I mean, uh, the people that we um, exchanged with said, feel free to go up in the uh, attic and uh, look in our trunks, and we saw their family portraits for many years. They had newspaper clippings from the 19th century and, and even bats in the attic. So <laughs> we were really uh, had a great uh, English experience. I think a lot of people go to these small villages based on their love of literature and movies that they've seen, and to live in someone's house for two weeks, it's just a great experience to just... Uh, uh, soak up the atmosphere. Oh, you're so right, Lisa, and I think that's the great charm of England, isn't it? The fact that it is like stepping into the pages of books or actually into films. I mean, it really is like that. People think that these places are stage sets, but they're not. That's what most of England is like. And if you're right. rummaging through somebody's attic with license to read all of their family journals and everything, at least it's English, so you can understand it. <laughs> that's right. That sounds very interesting, Lisa, and certainly a good budget way to travel. If you're comfortable sharing your house, you can swap houses, and a lot of people do that, and I've heard nothing but good about it. You know, it's just a wonderful way to meet people and really extend uh, the American message to other countries and, and to see how the rest of the world lives. And it's interesting to see how they recycle and how, how they just talk politics and just, just to become really world travelers. People yep. to people. That makes tourism a powerful force for peace. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Happy travels. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Roy Nichols, who's a tour guide friend of mine. And Roy's been taking Americans around his country, England, for longer than you care to admit, I would imagine. And one of the highlights for Americans is to check out the gardens. I'm not even into gardens. And when I go to these great gardens in England, i got to say, it's, it's really a highlight. How can you appreciate the gardens? Well, gardening is such a passion in England. I mean, you have obviously the, the great formal gardens, the gardens owned by the National Trust, the famous gardens from Heligan in Cornwall through Bodnant in North Wales, through the gardens of the Cotswolds in the southeast, places like Sittinghurst. Hidcote. Hidcote in Beautiful. the Cotswolds. That's the Cotswolds. So if you're going to the Cotswolds, I found Hidcote, what is it, Hidcote Manor or something? Or? Well, Hidcote Manor, yes, is a house owned by the National Trust, but the, it's the garden that people go to. Because it's kind it's, of expensive. You've got to pay to go to these gardens, but they're really well-designed and well-presented, I think. Of course, and it, it's all part of our heritage because most of these gardens, many are decades old, and they are being preserved by organizations like the National Trust, sometimes private owners, of course, really for the benefit of uh, ourselves and, and all our visitors. Now, you've taken actual tours of gardens across England. I've done garden tours in the past, yes. For you, what is the two or three most important gardens to have on your list? Well, one of the most famous and the best visited is probably Sissinghurst Garden in the southeast of England. This was laid out by Vita Sackville-West and her husband in the 1920s and 30s. From there, I would then go on to probably Hidcote Garden again, um, there's the great formal gardens of Bodnant in North Wales. Heligan, uh, some of you might have heard of the Lost Gardens of Heligan. They were literally rediscovered in the 1990s, and they're an absolute gem down in Cornwall. So the, the first three you said Sissinghurst, is that right? Sissinghurst in Kent. And that sounds like the very best, and that's in the south of England? Southeast of England. The counties of Kent and Sussex have probably the highest concentration of gardens anywhere. Hidcut is an uh, easy side trip from Chipping Campton or places in the Cotswolds. That's right, yes. And Bodenant Gardens, I love that one. That is uh, south of Conway in northern Wales. That's right. These are all easy access from the famous castles and other things you might be seeing. And you can just combine them with a you know a straightforward holiday and just see them as a, as a side trip. Now, a lot of people are interested in these uh, mazes in the gardens. Uh, what's a good maze? Oh, well, the most famous, of course, is Hampton Court. Yeah. Um, this was laid out in the 15th and 16th century, and any house of any status in this period would have had a maze. Many of them have disappeared, but new ones have been laid out today. So any, any house of any status would have a maze. That means oh, a yeah. big hedge that's taller than six feet. 
with a uh, sort of a secret well, it, route it, through it, and you can't find your way out. Yeah, with lots of dead ends and back turns on them. And it was to sort of really sort of give pleasure and interest to people trying to find the way out of the mazes. And there are some very famous ones. Fun aspect of the gardens of England. Now, another aspect is the manor houses. And there are youth hostels that are in manor houses now. There's haunted manor houses. There's manor houses with eccentric lords. Well, manor houses vary in size from places that are almost verging on being palaces down to your little local manor house where it would be the local lord who would live in quite a large house. They were starting to be built in the 13th and 14th centuries. They were still being built as stately homes in the 18th century, 19th century. Many, again, are preserved as private homes, but many are owned, again, by institutions like English Heritage and the National Trust. Now, this is part of, uh, wasn't kind of like feudalism, where you've got a lord who owns all the land, and you've got peasants out there, and he would, of have course. A, he would have a tithing barn, right? So the peasants would bring 10% of their produce and Well, the a manor is an old sort of um, institution whereby, as you said, Rick, it, it's the lord of the manor living on a parcel of land, the land being actually sort of farmed by the local villages and things. But of course, that feudal system disappeared in England by the 15th and 16th centuries. But nonetheless, the institution of the Lord of the Manor carried right through until the 20th century, usually owned by the local landowner. And to this day, you've got some guys who are lords whose families have owned this house for centuries. And they're in kind of hard times with the modern economy and high taxation and the cost of keeping one of these places up. Uh, Of course, all of these places, particularly the very large stately homes, were actually run really on cheap labor. And of course, since the Second World War, labor has gone up. Um, taxes, punitive taxes, all of these things have made it very difficult. Consequently, you've got these impoverished lords with patches on their leotards and and ruffled tuxedos and disheveled hair, you know? And and it's true, yes. There are many that have huge amounts. They're very rich in land, but very money poor. Which one comes to mind? Um, I think probably the um, Stanway House. Stanway House. In the the Cotswolds. And he opens his house a couple times a month just to help pay his rent. Well, I I think it was in the 1960s when these places, for the first time, started opening up to the general public, and it was seen. It was quite a scandal at the time. I was quite a young boy, but I remember it was quite a scandal, all these private houses being opened up to the hoi polloi. All over Europe, I find private homes and manor houses that are opened, and it's the lord or the lady themselves at the gate taking $5 or $10 for people to come in and see their place. It's a, a humbling, sort of a humiliating experience for these lords to have to sit there and and issue tickets so they can uh, fix their roof. Well, I think many of them, although these days obviously there are economic reasons for doing it, but many people, the owners of these manor houses, take pride in opening it to the public. Mm -hmm. And many of them will actually do it deliberately to actually show off their houses to their... part of the heritage of the countryside. Exactly. Another part of the heritage of the English countryside, of course, are the stone circles, all of the Stonehenge type things. And we all know Stonehenge and many of us know Avebury, but there are countless stone circles that are your own private stone circle when you're in the countryside if you know where to find it. A good ordnance survey map will tell you where these stone circles are. What are some of your favorite experiences in England from 2000 BC? Well, of course, the most famous ones that leap to mind, as you've mentioned, Stonehenge and also Avebury. But there isn't a part of the country that you don't find these. Down in Dorset, there are many. Down in Cornwall, there are many. These all date to 2000 BC, that sort of period. Uh, there are individual standing stones. All through the, the rocky west, you've got hundreds and thousands of these standing stones and stone circles. Across England, we've also got tourist traps. The English are better than anybody at taking a mediocre, almost worthless site, pumping it up with their advertising, and putting out a bus parking lot and charging for it. What are your most notorious list of tourist traps in England that you might want to be skeptical Well, it's a strange dichotomy that um, Stonehenge is one of the most famous and most important prehistoric sites in the world. And yes, in many ways, it can be quite a horrid experience for visitors. It's a zoo for a lot of people. There's a huge bus parking lot. There's portaloos, I think you call them. That's right. And then Um, tour guides with blowhorns and barbed wire at your knees. You can't even get close to those stones anymore. That's the sad fact of it. Um, It is a conflict between preserving our heritage but also presenting it to the general public and all visitors. I would say travelers do need to be careful of clever advertising when they're traveling around England. Uh, there's a lot of uh, you know, economic scrambling, and there's a lot of great sites, and there's a lot of marginal sites, and you need to be selective and try to see through some of the come-ons on the ads. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Roy Nichols, who's a tour guide and a friend of mine who lives in Dorset in the south of England. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Bob's on the phone in San Antonio, Texas. Bob, thanks for your call. Well, thanks for uh, letting me uh, ask you some questions. It's uh, First of all, Rick, it's been uh, my pleasure to watch your shows. It's just 
brought me so much joy, I can't believe to, uh, to tell you. Uh, but anyway, getting back to my question is, uh, is it real difficult to get around in the countryside in a wheelchair? Roy, you're a tour guide for 30 years in England. Uh, if somebody can't walk well or is in a wheelchair, what advice would you give them? Hello, Bob. Um, it has its obviously inherent problems, um, but nonetheless, I, I wouldn't let that put you off from visiting the countryside. You'll certainly access the villages, no problems. Although in past times, uh, England has found it very difficult getting up to date, making places uh, wheelchair accessible. Increasingly, places are. Things like the pavements are being given ramps so you can get onto the pavements and all that sort of thing. Transport, increasingly, buses, local transport, trains and buses are being provided with accessible ramps and all of those sort of facilities. Um, I, so I, I really wouldn't let it put you off visiting the countryside. Now, Roy, you owned and operated a bed and breakfast in the countryside for several years or many, yeah. many years, and I would imagine not all B&Bs are accessible, but if a and b is accessible, is that advertised in any way? It is indeed. All the local tourist information offices and uh, accommodation guides will have this as one of the facilities of the building itself, whether it's wheelchair accessible and all the other things where they have disabled bathroom facilities and all of those sort of things. So you'll always find accommodation available to you in the countryside. There you go, Bob. Good luck. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your um, call and, and thanks for traveling with us and happy travels. I just love it. Thank you very much. You bet. We'll finish our journey through the countryside of England with Roy Nichols in a moment. And then we'll check in with Kasia Derlitska about the 200th birthday commemoration of composer Frederick Chopin. The Poles embrace Chopin as a native son and we'll find out why Kasha, like so many Poles, is so proud of his legacy. The beauty of the English countryside or the scenery of Poland, accompanied by the music of Chopin, might be some of the places that stir up your inner poet. Send us a haiku you've written about your travels. There's a link in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Here are a few examples sent to us by our listeners that we thought you might enjoy. Jane Palestini from Clive, Iowa, sent us a set of haiku about a number of places that are important to her. Here's what she wrote about England. Sheep graze in green fields, villages of gold-hued stone, gentle rain, England. Anthony La Mesa from Antigua, Guatemala, sent us a travel haiku with a political message. Sick in Great Britain. Trip over? No. NHS, Listening U.S., and Karen Barta of Bath, Ohio, tells us of an outdoor musical experience she had in Poland. In Krakow's Old Square, to heaven on trumpet song, soar on broken note. Steves, this is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Roy Nichols, who's a tour guide from the south of England, and Holger's on the phone from Tillamook, Oregon. Holger, thanks for your call. Yes, uh, thank you, Rick. Uh, I have one question. Uh, many years ago, I wrote James Harriet, and of course, he was still alive then, and, and I want to visit him because, you know, I want to see his practice and that, and I understand his son took over, so is the veterinary practice open to the public to see a way practice, you know, the countryside and the actual practice, or is that uh, not available? Well, first of all, James Harriet country, what people like to call is north of York, just to the west of the North York Moors. Is that right, That's Roy? right. And historically, people have been able to go to James Harriet's uh, place, and he would actually come out and 
chat with people, I guess, but that was a long time ago. What's the latest? My latest information is that th- this is in the, uh, the little town of Thursk, which is north of York. And this was the building that you often see in the TV series because they recreated many of the rooms for the TV series actually in the building itself. It's open to the public. Of course, it's still run as a museum. The family don't run their veterinary practice from there anymore. So it really is just open to the public. But yes, you can. You can go and visit. And you go there and it's really a museum. You're not going to meet a relative or anything like that. No, you won't meet a relative. But the rooms that you saw in the TV series and the film series have been recreated in the building itself, in the original building. So you really are walking the rooms that James Harriet walked. There was a phenomenon when James Harriet was alive and well where people would actually go up there and he would meet them, wasn't there? Oh, that's right. He was a very friendly man. He'd long since retired from practice, Mm -hmm. but he would actually come out every day and sign autographs and things like that. Imagine that. I mean, you've, you're a beloved sort of character, and you step out your door, and you always got people camped out on your gate waiting to see and take your picture, and, and he was quite gentle was and comfortable. very, very, very comfortable with doing that. There you go, Holger. Okay, thank you, sir. Yes, thanks mm-hmm. for your call. Bye. Roy, very quickly, I want to just review a few things about the English countryside and get your take on it. The best sheep experience. Oh, the best sheep experience. Well, you can go and have uh, demonstrations of shepherding anywhere in the country. There's loads of places. My, my favourite is the one at um, Cockermouth in the, the Lake District. About an hour drive uh, west of Keswick, is that right? Or? Probably a little bit less than that, about less 30 there. minutes. Okay, but Keswick is the, the best home base for the North Lakes. Keswick District. is in the north of the lakes and he, right at the top. Cockermouth, great sheep demo. Indeed, yeah. How about the best open-air folk museum where they've actually sort of protected the old way of living and display it to the tourists? Oh, there are so many. Uh, but perhaps my favourite, depends on the type. One that immediately comes to mind, is, of course, is Bliss Hill in the um, Shropshire area. And that takes you back to the year 1900 or so. Exactly. It's the 18th, 19th century Industrial in Revolution industrial period. Yeah. in northern England. All right. Brighton or Blackpool, the two Coney Islands of England? Of the two, I would really would suggest Brighton. Why? It has some of the trappings of the seaside resort. It's a little bit more sophisticated. It has some beautiful buildings, lovely 18th century. And, of course, it's got the Royal Pavilion. The Royal Pavilion. And it's just a quick side trip south of London by a very good train connection. Less than an hour from London. Wasn't it the sort of the um, summer resort? or the, It was the, the great for, watering place. Uh, for the aristocracy, for the, for the royalty, actually. Of course. Well, the Prince Regent, who eventually became George IV. All right. Preferred. Oxford or Cambridge? Um, purely personal preference, I would say Oxford. Is that from a, if you want your son to go there or if you want your tourist to go there? I would say uh, for the tourist to go there because it's an easier connection than Cambridge is. It's mm-hmm. a bit closer. Uh, you can use it as a base to explore the Cotswolds. Mm-hmm. So you can combine your holidays and do various things. How do Oxford and Cambridge welcome the tourist who wants to understand, what do you call it, the, the mix of town and gown? Well, both of them, uh, many of the colleges offer tours to tourists when the colleges, the universities aren't in session. So you can pick up a local guide. They will take you on a walking tour of the of the city. Get into the mess halls, get into the dorms. Exactly, the quadrangles, all of those things. Is Stratford, the home of William Shakespeare, worth the trouble? If you're a Shakespeare fan, I certainly would suggest it. Personally, I do love Shakespeare. And although the town itself is very touristy, everybody goes there, a lot of foreign visitors, nonetheless, it's still worth it if you're a Shakespeare fan to actually walk The floors, the birthplace of Shakespeare, well worth it. You'll go to the birthplace of Shakespeare for sure, and then there's five or six other Shakespeare-related sites. Of those, which one would you be sure to check out? I would go to the local church where Shakespeare's buried. Really? Yeah. I would go to Anne Hathaway's cottage. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of great stuff there. And ghost walks. Every city's peddling ghost walks these days. If you're going to go on one of these tacky ghost walks after dinner in an English town... Where would you have the most likeliness oh, to see a real to, ghost? You have to go to York. Uh, it's said to be the most haunted city in Britain. It's in the northeast of England. There are several companies that offer these uh, ghost walking tours. And it is recorded as having the most anywhere. Okay, so if you're going to meet a ghost, it's going to be with a local guide wearing a funny cape and a Dracula hat, and it'll and, be and in York. They're fun experiences, and they do hype it up a little bit. But it is a, a genuinely haunted city. you got to do that. When you're in York, take a ghost walk. I'm speaking with Roy Nichols. We're talking about the charms of the English countryside. Roy, to finish things off, share with me your favorite single destination that would reward somebody with the uh, essence of the English countryside. Uh, Can I be really biased, Rick, and suggest you go to Dorset? It's one of my favorite counties. I do happen to live there, admittedly, but it offers so many things. Uh, You could base yourself somewhere like Salisbury or one of the smaller cities, uh, towns in Dorset, 
you'll see the quintessentially English countryside, those beautiful thatched houses. You can see castles. You can see manor houses. You can see villages. You can see cottages. You can see gardens. All the things that I always think of that make England. And you can meet friendly locals like Roy Nichols. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Happy travels. Even though he's not British, you can hardly go wrong with a soundtrack by Chopin to accompany a drive in the country anywhere. This year marks the 200th birthday of Frederick Chopin, who was born in Warsaw. And to get a sense of the affection the Polish people have for Chopin, we're calling our old friend Kasia Derlitska. She's been a tour guide for years, showing Americans her native Poland, and Kasia was one of the first guests we had on Travel with Rick Steves five years ago. Today, she's living in Switzerland, working with the international campaign to ban landmines. We reached Kasia in her office in Geneva to find out why she and her fellow Poles are so excited about all the Chopin celebrations this year in Poland. Kasia, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. I'm really excited to be with you and to talk about it. Well, you know, different nations identify with great composers. Uh, you know, Edvard Grieg would be close to the soul of Norway, and of course, when you go to the Czech Republic, everybody's all hot on Smetana. And Chopin really is the big cultural figure for the Polish people. Why is that? Well, I think for very good reasons. First of all, he, he's a great composer, and a composer who has been inspired by the Polish, uh, by the Polish nature, by the Polish landscape, by Polish culture, by Polish folk music, when he used to spend his summer in the countryside of Poland. And also a composer that happened to live in a very dramatic, a very important period of time for the Polish history, when actually Poland ceased to exist on the map of Europe and when there was a great immigration of Polish patriots, uh, artists, composers, mainly to Paris, where they stayed practically until the end of their life. They did not see Poland again. They missed it very much. And a lot of, of their artwork was dedicated to their home country and the people. Wow, now that's something I hadn't thought about. So he was born in 1810. After the Napoleonic Age, Poland uh, ceased to exist on the map and just gobbled up by Germany and Russia, I suppose. And Austria. And Austria. Russia, Austria, and Russia. Great neighbors. (laughs) Yeah, so then um, all of these great cultural figures from Polish culture, a lot of them go into exile, and, and people like Chopin end up in Paris. But Poland is still in their heart. And in a sense, they kept the notion of Poland alive through their culture, even though the political country of Poland was, for a while, non-existent. Exactly so, and I think, you know, perhaps this is maybe exaggeration, but, but I think maybe not. Thanks to people like Chopin, we still have preserved the culture, the spirit of Poland, and, and perhaps thanks to them, the, the people carried on, and today we have Poland back. Because it is quite remarkable that Poland survives at all when you think of what it's gone through in the last century or so. Now, Kasia, you live in Geneva, in Switzerland. When you listen to Chopin, what do you hear? Mm. (laughs) Whenever I listen to Chopin, it really brings me back home. And um, as I have already shared with you a few years ago, when Pauls listen to Chopin's music, what we hear is actually... We basically the wind blowing through the willow trees, as we say. Why so? Um, first of all, you have to be away from your country to actually hear this wind blowing through the willow trees. I've always been told, yes, if you listen to Chopin's music, you will hear this wind blowing through the willow trees because Chopin spent his childhood in the Mazovian region around Warsaw, which is actually very popular with this willow trees. And it's a very flat region, so there was a lot of wind, and he was inspired by the sound. But to be honest, Rick, I've never heard this wind blowing through the willow trees until, actually, I went away from Poland. I had to live in another country. It was actually the USA at that time. And then I, one evening I put some Chopin's music on, and, uh, and I heard it. And finally I heard the wind. The wind blowing and through the willow trees, reminding yes, of, of your yes. homeland. Yes, and it brought me back to, to Warsaw and to Poland, and, and that was very, very special. And that's a way that I think all of the exiles of Polish culture can commune together over the ages almost, is to remember the importance of their homeland and the struggles of their homeland, and they can share it through this Polish culture, whether they're in Poland, whether Poland even exists politically or not. 
Yes, that has been always a, the big part of our identity and of our pride. Now, anybody who's been to Warsaw probably remembers the wonderful bronze statue of Chopin, and he's seated underneath this stylized willow tree that's blowing over his head, and it's a huge statue. The willow tree almost looks like uh, sort of echoes the pianist's hands and fingers, but it's actually a willow tree blowing in the breeze. And now mm-hmm. that makes more sense, doesn't it? Yes, 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 it's true, and it's a very special statue. The statue was uh, erected before the Second World War, but was completely destroyed during the Second World War. And it was only a few years after that it was erected again exactly in the same way. Originally, it was uh, made by a famous Polish sculptor. And yes, he wanted to, at the same time, show the willow tree and the blowing queen, but, but also the very long and subtle and special hands of Chopin. And since the statue was remade and, and repositioned there in 1958, there's been a, a summer concert series in that same park. And I remember even as a student going to Warsaw and enjoying Chopin played by great, generally local musicians underneath that inspirational statue right there in Warsaw, celebrating Polish culture and especially, I think, celebrating this um, rebirth of a great city after being literally flattened in World War II. You are absolutely right. This is one of the highlights, I think, in Warsaw during summertime, to go to the Lazienki Park and, and sit among the beautiful roses and, and, and trees and listen to free piano concerts on Sunday afternoon. I would imagine it's in fantastic. this year, with the 200th birthday of, of Chopin, there'll be a busy schedule of concerts going on, and anybody traveling to Poland can certainly uh, get online and see what the concert schedule is. And the big news for people who appreciate Frederick Chopin is they've renovated the Chopin Museum in Warsaw in the uh, Ostrowski Palace. This is the home of the Frederick Chopin Institute. In there, you can find a lock of his hair and the last piano he composed on and his death mask and so on. Kasia, when you think of a lock of his hair, try to imagine how popular. Was, was Chopin sort of a cultural heartthrob in his day? From what we know from the letters of his friends and, and other documents that were left after, uh, yes, yes, definitely. Dur- already during his lifetime, he was considered to be one of the greatest Polish patriots and artists and definitely composer and virtuos. He was a celebrated figure among the Polish immigrants in, in Paris, and he left a lot of fans here uh, in Warsaw and in Poland. As you know, from very early childhood, he was considered to be a genius. Uh, he composed at the age of seven of, or six years his own pieces that were already considered great work. Unfortunately, there was a lot that he, he composed and, and, and wrote that we never learned about because it, it, it perished during this um, violent time. And then Chopin traveled a lot, and he never went back to Poland. And but, I think we can remember during this age, Kasia, that this is the Romantic Age in Europe, after the, uh, exactly. you know, the Revolutionary Age or the, the Neoclassical Age. And this was a time when small countries were standing tall, whether it's Bulgaria or Norway or Poland, they're all having their resurgence or their renaissance. You find that cultural characters from these small countries were carrying the banner forth and being celebrated by their countrymen. And when we think about the little countries and the struggles they've had, we hear it and we see it in the art of their great creative leaders. I think there's a lot of nationalism in Chopin's music. Uh, It's clear from his letters that he had a negative view of the powers that occupied Poland, he really had an empathy for the, the folk culture. He was inspired by, by his times in the countryside when he would hear Polish folk music, and in a sense, he would immortalize that through his great compositions. Is that your understanding? I mean, it, it takes just listening to some of his mazurkas to hear this, uh, this folk tunes that, that totally bring you back to the Polish countryside, and you can easily imagine finding yourself among a folk dancing group. That's true, and, and this is one of the strong features of Chopin's music, I think, also something that made it so dear to the hearts of Poles. Mazurka, is that a Polish folk dance? Yes, it is. All right, I'm and Rick I Steves. I know how to dance it. <laughs> I can't dance it, but I can play the military polonaise, and that's a stirring song, and I'm sure it's inspired by some of the struggles the Poles had, and we have to remember that they have their popular titles, like the military polonaise, but yes. Chopin just named them by genre and by number. So it's in Chopin's mind, it was polonaise, opus 40, number one. But he's got a lot of his emotions and his, his passions into this music. 
We're speaking with Kasia Derliska, and Kasia is a Polish friend of mine who works in Geneva now with the International Campaign to Ban Landmines. And Kasia, like most of her countrymen, is celebrating the 200th birthday of Frédéric Chopin. So, Kasia, Chopin spent most of his life, or his creative career, actually in Paris. His lover, a woman named George Sand, called him more Polish than Poland itself. Of course, uh, Chopin died in Paris and was buried in Père Lachaise, but he really left his heart back in his home country, didn't he? Yes, and we can symbolically say so, but also literary. Um, he was more Polish than Poland. I, I can easily understand why she said so, an eccentric woman, as uh, George uh, said. I am sure that uh, Chopin could be easily considered as being obsessed by Poland, by its history, by all the things that, that were happening at that time to the nation of Poland. So I can easily see that. Indeed, he has never really left Poland mentally and spiritually, and we can hear it in his music. And then, according to his last wish, after his death, his heart was brought back to Poland by his older sister, and it remains in Poland until today. It actually is kept in one of the most important churches in Warsaw, the Church of the Holy Cross which is almost just on the opposite side of the present uh, University of Warsaw, which used to be one of the buildings of this university, used to be a home, a home of, of the Chopin's family. So he actually, at the end, he, he went back to his um, homeland and to his home city and almost to, to the very building or very street, definitely the very street of his last residence in Poland, which I think is really, really beautiful and Anyone who comes to Poland, especially this year, can visit all the sites, can go and see and read where Chopin's heart lies. And actually there is a, there is a line from Bible there that your heart is where your, uh, that you, yes, that your uh, home is where your heart lies. And I, I think this is, this is very, very true for Chopin. So physically and spiritually, the heart of Chopin lies in his homeland, Poland. Yes. And we'll remember that in this 200th anniversary of the birth of Frederick Chopin. Kasia Derliska, thanks so much for cluing us in on a great Polish cultural figure. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Thanks to Sarah McCormick for production help and to Keith Sticklemeyer for reading this week's haiku. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Britain, Ireland, and beyond, one small group at a time. For example, just for Britain and Ireland, you can choose from four exciting itineraries. For a free tour catalogue and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.